0: Let us once again turn to Luke's gospel as we continue our series on this wonderful gospel. Luke, the seventh chapter, beginning with verse 18. Now, let me remind you that we looked last week at Jesus, our Savior, who raised the widow's son at Nain. And in my opinion, that is, perhaps after the birth narratives, an absolute high point uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And necessary that we understand that that's happened in order to understand the text that we are about to read. Will you pray with me? And now, Heavenly Father we ask that because we are sitting under your word, that every one of us would have a desire to hear it and to know Christ in it, to be obedient to what you speak, to have hearts that are changed and transformed by the word. And now may the message that wells up in the minister's heart go forth into the hearts of all who are here, and may it well up in their hearts as well As a message from the living God. Because, Father, we would say and speak those things which expound your scripture and are in accord with your word. May your spirit bless it. In the name of the almighty, powerful, wonderful, and beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's word and stand? Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 18. This is the word of God. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor Have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, "'He has a demon.'" The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. When. God raised the widow's son at name through our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate. News spread far and wide, without TVs, without internet, everyone around, even in Judea, knew about it. And they called Jesus a prophet. Yes, he was a prophet, but as we saw, far more than that. As our text opens this morning, John the Baptist is in a gloomy dungeon. We know that because way back in chapter 3, verse 20, we are told that he is in prison. And in that depressing situation, John has a very serious question. Not the question of a skeptic. John is asking questions within the realm of faith. Indeed, Anselm's maxim might well have been John the Baptist. I believe in order that I may understand. John has heard about the resurrection of the young man at Nain. We are told that in verses 18 and 19. And then he sends disciples to Jesus to ask this question. Are you the one who was to come, or should we continue to look for someone else? That is, are you the Messiah, or will there be another after you? Our Lord answers John by directing him to biblical authority, and it is the concept, the theme of the authority of God's Word that binds together the passage that we have read this morning. So, first of all, the very first point for you this morning is this Were you not listening to Isaiah? Were you not listening to Isaiah? Here is John languishing in this dark prison. He knows that inevitably death awaits him. It is a grim situation. No wonder he asks questions. Most of you also know what it is like to be in a depressive situation, and questions that you cannot answer rise to the fore. A situation that John is in that may have seemed to contradict the goodness of God, though it did not may have seemed to contradict what he knew about God, though it did not, may have seemed to contradict what he knew about Jesus, though it did not. John, you see, knew that the Messiah who was to come would come to judge. In chapter 3 of Luke's gospel, just to give an example, in chapter 3, verse 7, when John is preaching, he preached, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And in verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore that does not bring forth good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And there are other passages to which we could look. John knew that he was the forerunner of the one who would bring judgment, but he doesn't see judgment come. The Roman empire is still very fast in its hold on Judea and on Israel. John, in other words, didn't have the whole picture. He couldn't see everything. He didn't know the ultimate purpose and plan of God. And so he could not see how behind a frowning providence, God was hiding a smiling face. And who of us cannot identify with that? That behind a frowning providence, God hides his smiling face, but indeed hides it. He smiles at us, we know that through Jesus Christ our Lord, but sometimes in circumstances we can't see it, and I think that's where John the Baptist is as we come to this text this morning. Well, the answer that Jesus gives to John's disciples is a very interesting answer. Look at verses 21 through 23 again. They ask the question from John, and this is how Jesus answers. Are you the one who is to come or shall we expect another? What does Jesus do? He heals the sick. He removes, actually one of the words is a scourge. He removes painful illnesses. He raises the dead before the eyes of the disciples of John the Baptist. And most importantly, the good news about Jesus is being preached to the poor. And that is his answer to John. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. That's his answer. Now, what kind of an answer is that? Well, I would say it's a very powerful answer. But what is the point of the answer that Jesus sends back to John? Well, the miracles were intended to trigger something within the mind of John, to ring a bell, as we say, of what should they have reminded John, and of what should these things remind us? Well, they should have reminded John and would have reminded John of the prophet Isaiah, that eighth century BC. prophet who prophesied of the coming of Jesus Christ over and over in multiple ways throughout his wonderful book. Isaiah 29:18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. Isaiah 61, 1, also referenced in Jesus' first sermon in Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good news unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah twenty-six nineteen. your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. So <laughs> over and over again in Isaiah, he speaks of the coming messianic age. And that when the Messiah would come, this indeed is what would take place. The blind receive their sight. People that can't hear, hear again. The dead are raised up. The poor will have the gospel preached to them. And so Jesus is saying, John, the miracles that I do are the answer to your question. Am I the one that was appointed and prophesied to come, or shall there be another? No, no, there will not be another. John, I am the one. I am the one who was prophesied to come. And John, as you observed me, as you observed me through the report of your disciples, were you not listening to Isaiah? Were you not listening, John, to the word of God? Were you not following the stream of prophecy, especially in the book of Isaiah? John, will you not hear God's word? And so he adds in verse 23, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me, that is to say the one who will not stumble over me by having your own ideas of who I am or should be rather than what the scriptures teach. That I am and who I was, I am who was to come. So, what should you do when you also have questions and even questions that perhaps trouble you, trouble you very deeply, you can't answer? Well, the first thing you do is to do what John did. You go to Jesus. He did that through his disciples. He was in prison, but nonetheless, he went to Jesus, and you can do that directly. Go to Jesus. Secondly, you should be in his word because that's how he speaks, and the answer that he sends back is the answer of the word of God as found in the prophecy of Isaiah. And thirdly, when you ask your questions, ask with humility and faith as John did. Now, young people, let me tell you, the truth has nothing to fear. There is no question that you cannot answer. From God's Word. There is no question that we would say, don't ask, because we fear that question. You ask anything you wish, anything you want, anything that troubles you, anything that you long for an answer to. The truth has nothing to fear. But remember this your heart is not neutral when you ask questions. It shows the stance of your heart when you ask or ask in a certain way. And so ask, but believe in order to understand. Human autonomy is a dark, dark pit with no answers. Ask within the realm of faith. Now that's what John is doing, and the answer to him once again is, John, look to the prophecy of Isaiah. But then Jesus turns to the crowd, and many do not understand John, and they do not understand Jesus, and he says to the crowd, and this is your second point, were you not listening to Malachi Were you not listening to Malachi? John's messengers left. Jesus asked the crowd questions. Someone has called these questions quasi-satirical questions, and they certainly are. The question, what is it that you went into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? Now, don't you think that John's question about Jesus indicates A fickle, unstable man, the crowd or some in the crowd may have been asking. Well, that is not the sort of man that drew you to the River Jordan to be baptized with a baptism of repentance is the answer to the question. No, no, John the Baptist was solid. I read this recently and couldn't help but think, uh, as an author was pointing out, the connection with John the Baptist. It's about the early Christian minister early church father, Chrysostom. It says, "...when the great Chrysostom was arrested by the Roman emperor, the latter sought to make the Greek Christian recant, but without success. So the emperor discussed with his advisors what could be done to the prisoner. Shall I put him in a dungeon?" The emperor asked. "...no," one of his counselors replied, "...for he will be glad to go. He longs for the quietness wherein he can delight in the mercies of his God." Well, then shall he be executed, said the emperor, was no the answer, for he will also be glad to die. He declares that in the event of his death, he will be in the presence of his God. What then shall we do, the emperor asked. There's only one thing that will give Chrysostom pain, the counselor said, to cause him to suffer, make him sin. He is afraid of nothing except sin. Now, that's how the Christian should be. That's the way John the Baptist was. He was no reed shaking in the wind. Perhaps they could see reed shaking in the wind. You know, this way and that, easily broken. That's not John the Baptist. Well, then a question is asked, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft garments. Well, no, you go to palaces to find men that ingratiate themselves to kings so that they may have posh positions. John did not flatter Herod. John is in prison because he called Herod to repent. He's not Mr. Pliable in the writings of John Bunyan. Mr. Pliable was never martyred for his faith because he was back and forth and very, very pliable, not John the Baptist. The real question, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and more than a prophet. Jesus says, well, how was he more than a prophet? Because John was the object of prophecy. And so he answers the crowd in verse 27. Look at it. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He was more than a prophet because John was the object of of prophecy. The last of the Old Testament prophets, the beginning of the new as a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was Messiah's herald. In Malachi 4, we are told he, he would be the new Elijah. He is the forerunner to prepare hearts to receive the Lord. And so he is a prophet prophesied in Malachi Now, Jesus praises John in verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John fulfilled his calling wonderfully. He pointed to Jesus Christ, called sinners to repentance, receded into the background, and was a true, humble servant of the Lord. But the least of you who are now in God's kingdom... Are greater than John. What does that mean? It means that you are more privileged than John. That John anticipated fulfillment, but you live in the era of fulfillment. That you who trust me, Jesus is saying, will see the fulfillment to which John the Baptist points the cross, the empty tomb, Pentecost, a completed canon that you can hold in your hands this morning. That John the Baptist certainly never had. And if you believe John's message, you will follow me, trust me, and enter the kingdom through me. But how did the people respond to John? Verses 29 and 30 answer that question. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And so many turned to God and received John's baptism to repentance. But Pharisees and scribes, those who claimed to know most about the word of God, but did not, for the most part, they rejected his witness and hence rejected Christ. And in doing so, they rejected God's prophetic word so you see this portion of the text all comes to this did you not believe john he says to the crowd did you fail to discern the biblical stream of prophecy in his life and in his ministry were you not listening to malachi malachi 3 1 in particular and context the pharisees rejected the word of god rejected malachi's witness Rejected the word and claimed to be very religious about it. They rejected the word and in so doing, they ruined their own souls. Isn't that what the text says? Verse 30 the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. They rejected God's plan of salvation. The only one through whom they could be redeemed. They rejected God's word ultimately. The only place to which you can go to find out how you are to be saved from your sins. And so they ruined their own souls. You have rejected God's purpose of salvation being worked out through John the forerunner and Jesus the fulfillment. They didn't listen to Malachi. They didn't listen to John. And consequently, they did not listen to and did not obey and believe in Jesus. And because they rejected the Word and rejected John, they rejected Jesus and eternally ruined their souls. Let me tell you, if you reject the Word of God and what it says about Jesus Christ as the only Redeemer of sinners, you will ruin eternally, your own soul. You will ruin your own soul. And there are undoubtedly thousands upon thousands calling themselves Christians who are doing the same thing. The wise person heeds God's word. Is that you? So to John, he says, were you not listening to Isaiah? To the crowd, he says, Were you not listening to Malachi? And then thirdly, are you listening to me? Are you listening to me? Verses 31 to 35. Let's look at it again. Uh, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified of all her children. So the question is this. To what, therefore, shall I compare the people of this generation And what are they like? And the answer that Jesus gives is, this generation is childish and not in a positive way. And so he says, it's like children who are playing in the agora, in the marketplace. You can imagine that their parents are gathering food items or doing business as was done in the agora, and the children are playing in the agora while their parents are doing these things. And these two groups of children loudly reproach each other because they refuse to participate in each other's play. Now, some of you growing up played wedding, didn't you? Let's play wedding. Uh, I'll be the groom, you be the bride, you be the attendants, you can play the music. Some of us probably played funeral, maybe a morbid child of some kind, but (laughs) some of us played funeral. Okay, I'll be the funeral director, you be the corpse. You know, well, that's what the children are doing. They're playing in the Agora, and one group wants to play wedding. And the group that wants to play funeral says, I don't want to play wedding. I want to play funeral. And the group, there actually is a group that wants to play funeral, looks at the group that wants to play wedding. We don't want to play wedding. We want to play funeral. That's what we want to do. And they can't be satisfied. They simply can't be satisfied. And so in verses 33 and 34, for John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. When John came, the Jews said, we piped and you did not dance. You old ascetic we came piping and you refused to dance. Okay, well, Jesus comes and Jesus is filled with joy and he brings joy. And the Jews responded, well, we wailed and you would not weep. They wanted to play wedding and funeral depending upon how they thought they could get their way. They received neither John the forerunner nor Jesus the son of God, the fulfillment of John's preaching. But God's truth will be vindicated by the wise who love the truth. That's the meaning of verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Young people, let me say to you that you have nothing to be ashamed of in believing God's word and trusting in Jesus Christ, quite the opposite. And when the world by its collective life shows how foolish it is, you by God's grace can show stability and love In grace and mercy, you will have a sound mind, a sound heart, and a sound life. Indeed, the wise who rely on Christ vindicate the truth before a watching world. Now listen, the children who wanted to play were loud, noisy, reproachful, implacable, unwise, Foolish. It is as if the Lord is saying, You cannot hear me over your own voices, over your own implacable loudness. It's as if Jesus is saying, Shut up and listen to me. Be quiet and hear my voice. Hear God's word. Be wise, not foolish. What is this generation like? To what shall I compare? And what is the generation like in the time in which we live? Loud, noisy, reproachful, implacable, unwise, foolish, so loud, so boisterous, so full of ourselves That we do not and will not hear the voice of Jesus Christ the Savior. Not unless in sovereign free grace God intervened in the heart to grant regeneration and to give us ears to hear. So to John, he says, Were you not listening to Isaiah? To the crowd, he says, Were you not listening to Malachi? And then Jesus, in his almighty sovereign authority, stands before them and says, Are you not listening to me? Now, what holds all of this narrative together is the issue of authority. And authority is the issue of our day. It is, first of all, the issue of culture. The issue in culture is the issue of authority. Isaiah 520 is applicable. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Have you ever lived in a day, I ask some of you older ones here, have you ever lived in a day in which evil, is called good and good evil, darkness is put for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, more than in our own day. Young people, do you understand that modern uncertainty is an expression of doubt about the possibility of knowing anything? And when that happens, And you come to the conclusion we really can't know for certain anything, then anything goes. And when anything goes, society is a mess, and so will your life be if you buy into that false philosophy. The more insecure the world becomes, the more it will attack your Christian assurance. Because we are raising the convicting question before our culture, and if the church is faithful and consistent, the church will raise, because of what we say and how we live, the church will raise this question to our culture. By what standard? By what standard do you do that thing, that thing, make that decision, that decision? By what standard do you do that? An example that's so prevalent today is the example of marriage. Marriage, God says, is a creation ordinance. If you get this out of whack, and set aside what God says about how he has ordained creation, then anything goes. And that's what's happened. Marriage is whatever you want it to be. That's the view of the world. That's the view of our culture. So you ask the question, by what standard? Where is your authority for that? Well, someone says it's whatever culture wants it to be. All right, so you have culture saying that we can murder babies in the womb. But then culture changes and says, no, we may not murder babies in the womb. By what standard? So if culture changes again and says the majority of us think, our leaders think that murders like this can take place, Does that make it right? By what standard, we ask our culture, by what standard do you make these decisions, we ask the unbelieving world? And we could go on, and we could multiply illustrations, could we not? Let's say that a government thinks it's right to murder six million Jews, and later the government says it's not right to murder six million Jews. Or maybe I think when I help my grandmother across the road, it's a good thing that I help her with her groceries to reach the other side. Maybe you think it's a good idea to push her in front of a car. Who's to say who's right or who's wrong when there's no absolute standard? I ask you, by what standard? And the Christian says, there is no other and no other ground, no deeper ground for certainty than God has spoken. And he has spoken in his word. And if you set that aside, and certainty crumbles, then you're going to have the results that we're seeing in our culture. Let me tell you, authority is the issue in our culture today. But, perhaps more importantly, the issue in the church is authority. Now, Roman Catholicism says the Bible is not self-contained, it is not self-interpreting, it is not clear, and it is not sufficient. And so the church is where you look to find the mind of God. Subjectivism, largely associated with liberalism, and N.B. Stonehouse used used to speak of the persistence of liberalism. It always seems to be with us. Liberalism is subjectivism. Where do you find authority? Well, just by looking within myself for an enlightened Christian conscience, or an enlightened Christian consciousness. I hope you see the problems with that. Your enlightened Christian consciousness may tell you something my enlightened Christian consciousness doesn't. Where's the authority? The evangelical view, which happens to be the view the Bible teaches of itself, is that the Bible is necessary, clear, Sufficient, authoritative, and we look to the Bible for authority because this is how God speaks. And this is clearly the view of the Bible itself. The view of Christ, the view of the apostles, and J.I. Packer was right when he said to deny the normative authority of Scripture over the church is to misconceive the nature of Christianity and, in effect, to deny the lordship of Christ. Why is it at the beginning of our worship service that your minister comes and opens this Bible for us all to see? Because it says we are living, all of us, all of us, under the authority of this word, and we live as a pilgrim people on the way to heaven under the word until Jesus comes again. The issue in the church is authority. Young people, I, in my undergraduate work, was a Christian studies major in a very liberal Christian studies department in a major Southern university. None of the professors believed in biblical authority. None of them. One of my professors had studied under H. Richard Niebuhr at at Yale Another had studied under the death of God theologians at Candler. On and on. These were my professors. And they would tell the students, we do not believe that the Bible is an infallible book. We do not believe in its inerrancy. Okay, I said, bring on your arguments. Bring them on. And so I spent four years doing a major in a department in which they were constantly bringing on their arguments. And not one of them held water. Not one of them. the issue in the church, authority. And evangelical students that sat under evangelical pastors sat under those professors and were so undiscerning they couldn't see the difference. So it's the issue in society, it's the issue in the church. But now let me get really personal as I apply this to myself and to you. The issue in our personal lives is Authority. will we live under the authority of God's word or will we live autonomously scripture must sit in judgment over the dictates of our minds and our hearts and not the other way around scripture is given for our correction we are not to sit in judgment over the scriptures in order to correct it as if it has need of correction. Evangelicals, I am convinced, are half-hearted in our doctrine of Scripture, and that is why there is such an uncertain sound going forth from our pulpits today about those things that are true and right and good in large measure. J.I. Packer said it well many years ago, When he said, because the church on earth consists of imperfectly sanctified sinners, there are always two defects in the lives of its members, both corporately and individually. These are ignorance, the two defects that we all have as believers sitting here today, all of us. There are two defects, ignorance and error, which cause omissions and mistakes in belief and behavior. The church, therefore, has two constant needs, instruction in the truths by which it must live and correction of the shortcomings by which its life is marred. Scripture is designed to meet this twofold need. It is profitable for teaching and for training in righteousness on the one hand and for reproof and correction on the other. It is the church's responsibility to use scripture for its intended purpose. This it does by the complementary activities of exposition followed by reformation. To accept the authority of Scripture means in practice being willing first to believe what it teaches and then to apply its teaching to ourselves for our correction and guidance. The Reformers saw that this was what God demanded of the church in the 16th century And the truth is that he demands the same in every age of the church's life. The words and lives of Christian men must be in continual process of reformation by the written word of God. So the issue is authority. Weren't you listening to Isaiah? Weren't you listening to Malachi? Are you not listening to me? And where does he speak? He speaks in his written word, the infallible word. Now, one of the concerns that I have as your minister, as your pastor, I'm sure Jeff shares this with me, our intern I'm sure shares this, Adam, is is simply this. Let me give you an illustration of it rarely bring another book in the pulpit, but here it is. A.T. Robertson, great New Testament Greek scholar from whom I greatly benefit. It was very stern and strict with his students, demanded a great deal of them. And um, here's the reason why. Let me read from his biography. By getting to the right place? Light is thrown on this severe side of Professor Robertson, his teaching method, by the following incident related by one of his fellows. One morning after the class in New Testament, he came back to his office. He walked back and forth in seeming great distress. I made no inquiry. He exclaimed, what on earth can I do that I haven't done to inspire those men to learn this book? What are they thinking about? Why do they not master it? How can they expect to preach the book unless they know it? That goes to the roots of his teaching and an in inexpressible desire that his students apprehend and be apprehended by the gospel of Christ. So as your minister, I've been a professor in a seminary. I know his desire, but even more potently this morning as your minister, what must we do? To inspire, some of you are doing well, you really are, you're in the word day and night. But for some of you, what must we do to inspire you to be in this book? What will it take for some of you to see that you can't live on the basis of your own autonomy? What will it take for, so what on earth can I do that I haven't done to inspire you to learn the book? What are they thinking about? Why do they not master it? How can you expect to live the Christian life if you don't know it? So all of this text is about authority. Do you see it? Isaiah, Malachi, Jesus. And you and I must be, you and I must be radically into God's word day and night or we will be deceived. You must be radically in God's Word day and night so that it forms you. How you think, how you feel, your affections, your will, how you act. As a Christian, you must be in the Word day and night, or... You will be deceived. The word is preached here three times a week as a norm. There are Bible studies. You have your own Bible. Be in it. The word preached, the word read, the word studied. It's going to take different forms and different lives, but do it, or you will be deceived. Deceived. So we sing, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. There is only one firm foundation for your life, and that is the word of God written that reveals to us the true foundation for our souls, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So again, in the words of Isaiah, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Amen.